0: Psalm 44, give ear to the reading of God's holy word this morning. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors and the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the Bible tells us that, that uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Let's pray and ask him to bless his word to us this morning and give us understanding. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for psalms like this that give us a song to sing even in time of sorrow. We thank you for, for the example it gives to us. We thank you even for the way that the Apostle Paul uh, thought of it and quoted it in the New Testament, as we shall see. We ask that you would work in us even now by your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For we ask all of this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, as you heard, when we were, if you were following along the, the reading of Psalm 44 there, it starts off, you know, the first eight verses, it starts off very much like a victory psalm or a hymn of praise. If you were to stop at verse 8, the entire, the entire uh, tenor of the psalm would, would, have, would change dramatically. Uh, it starts off as a psalm of praise. The psalmist tells us uh, about the way that the previous generation, the generation of his fathers, had told them all about the great deeds of God for his people. And then what does he do? He, he proceeds to testify that those lessons about those great deeds of the past, those those deeds of deliverance and salvation by the hand of God, they hadn't fallen on deaf ears. You know, sometimes you can, you know, lead a, what's the old saying? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. You can tell someone. If you have kids, you know what this is like. You tell them something again, and again, and again, and then one more time, and then another time, and uh, it, it seems like there's no end of reminders that are that are needed. Well, the psalmist in verses 4 through 8 testifies that those lessons about the great deeds of God in the past hadn't fallen on deaf ears. They understood that it was God who delivered the people. It was God who gave them the land of promise and delivered it into their hands. The psalmist's generation, too, not just his father's generation, trusted in God for deliverance. And as verse 8 tells us, boasted in God continually. They were, boasting, they were trusting in God's deliverance. They were boasting about God's faithfulness and power and his works of deliverance and salvation. But then in verses 9 through 22, the psalm takes a, a very dramatic turn. Suddenly it becomes a lament. That's really what this psalm is. It starts off with praise. It ends somewhat on a note of hope and praise. But most of this psalm is a, is a lament. Uh, the bulk of the psalm is, is a lament. We don't know what the situation was. We don't know exactly who it was that that wrote it or what their circumstances may have have been. We don't know what this national calamity might have been. We know it was something involving uh, battle. It was something involving their, their military. But some kind of national calamity had come upon Israel and there was a great disgrace that came along with it. Now think about it. His father's generation boasted... Uh, boasted of God, driving out, verse 2, driving out the nations. Or if you have a King James Version, uh, it translates nations there as heathen. That's a word we don't use very often, but it's a very helpful and descriptive word. But in, in his father's generations, God had driven them out. God had driven out the heathen, the pagans, uh, from them as they entered into the promised land. But now in his generation, what's happening? In his generation, the psalmist generation, His own people, his own generation, had been given over to defeat at the hands of their enemies. They had been scattered, and not just scattered, but scattered where? What does verse 11 say? Scattered among the nations, same word, or the heathen. So the psalm goes from verses 1 through 8 to the verses that follow. It goes from recounting victory and boasting in God to lamenting defeat and disgrace. And to make things even worse, that defeat... Or disgrace that accompanied were not uh, they were not on the, on an account of sin in the camp, you know you know from your Bibles if you know your old and New Testament sometimes God withheld victory on account of sin but the psalmist says there in verses eighteen to twenty two that it wasn't because of their sin they had not turned their backs on God they had not committed idolatry they haven't broken their covenant with God. You know, if that were the case, it could be understood, couldn't it? God does still do that. God does still discipline his people. Uh, judgment begins, what does the Bible say? Judgment begins with the household of God. And if that's the case, Peter says, what, what could possibly become of the, the wicked and the unbeliever, those who haven't believed in the gospel? But the psalmist tells us in these verses, and we take him at his word, that this whatever this was was not a punishment for their own particular sins. It wasn't punishment due to being false with God's covenant. It wasn't a punishment for being false or departing from God's way verse 18. They hadn't as so often is the case in the Old Testament history, they hadn't turned aside to the false gods of the of the heathen verse 20. But what happened? God as Usually when you think of of God giving victory, God goes forth with his people into battle. He wins the victory for them. But in this case, did God go forth with his people in battle? No, the psalmist says God did not. Verse 9, God didn't go forth with them. He gave them over to their enemies to make it worse. So what does verse 22 say? It kind of sums it up. They were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Not exactly victory in Jesus in some ways, as the hymn puts it. So the psalmist is, is in Psalm 44. He's, he's in a place that I think sometimes you and I have been in, even though we don't often talk about it. He's perplexed. He doesn't know what to make of the ways of God. He can't make heads or tails out of what God is doing in their circumstances. Maybe you've been there a time or two in your life. You wonder, you know, what, something happens, whatever it may be, some uh, great calamity or loss, and you think, what is God doing? Is, is is it punishment for my sin and you can't think of anything not that you none of us are are, are beyond sin none of us can claim perfection in any stretch of the imagination uh, our our sanctification in this life in some ways is just small beginnings real beginnings but small beginnings at the end of the day we are all unprofitable servants at best but that doesn't mean that every bad thing that comes your way is a punishment for your sin, God doesn't treat us according to our sins, or repay us according to our iniquities, because He's repaid them on Christ in our behalf. If you are a believer, have you ever had difficulty squaring? I think you probably have, if you're a believer today. Have you had difficulty squaring what you know to be true of God in your heart of hearts? What the Scripture says, you believe what the Bible says, but in some ways, you you have to kind of say to yourself. Uh, I don't know how to square what I know to be true of God with, with what I'm experiencing right now or at a given time in your life. Sometimes that happens. It's not just something that, that happens in the Bible. It happens in our lives as well. Uh, if so, I have to say this, the, the Bible has a psalm for you if you've had that kind of a, a situation. And if you haven't, you, you one day very well Isn't it comforting to know that God has seen fit to give us psalms like Psalm 44 for those kinds of times? The the song we just sang a little while ago, the All Must Be Well, there's a line that goes something like this. uh, Faith can sing through times of sorrow. That's Psalm 44 in a nutshell. They were in the midst of it. This wasn't past tense. This wasn't, remember that bad thing that happened? Well, thank God that's over. They were in the thick of whatever it was, even if we aren't sure what It was, and God has given us psalms like this so that we can sing through times of sorrow as well. Well, the last thing we see in Psalm 44 is verses 23 to 26. The psalmist is there. He's crying out to his God, and he's saying something that it sounds wrong. It it sounds like you wouldn't want to put it that way if you were writing it. Well, it's a good thing that we weren't writing it. He says what? He asks God, he cries out to God to rouse himself from slumber. Now, does the psalmist really think God sleeps? No. He who watches Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, the, the Bible says. But he, he, it's as if he were, isn't it? His circumstances made him think it, it feels like God is asleep. It's like Jesus asleep in the back of the boat during that storm that we looked at in the Gospel of Mark. Were, were they, were, was Jesus really not watching over them? Was the Lord really not watching over them? But there he is sleeping in the back of the boat. How do you make heads or tails of that? How do you make heads or tails of what God is is doing? He asks God to come to the aid of his people and to redeem them for the sake of, verse 26, his steadfast love for them. At the end of the day, that's what all of our prayers to him must be based upon. He doesn't base it upon his own righteousness or that of his own generation. Claiming he hadn't sinned, his generation hadn't sinned to bring it on themselves is one thing. But when push came to shove, the basis of his prayer was God's steadfast love to them and that alone. Well, Here we're taught that once again in trials, even in severe trials and persecution, we shouldn't let them, we can't let those trials drive you from God. That's what those last verses teach us. They teach us that trials shouldn't drive us from God. We have to let them teach us uh, to make them drive us to God in prayer even more. That's what the psalmist does here for us in Psalm 44. We're going to look at three things. Our outline of today's text is going to be as follows. The first thing is faith, faith of our fathers in verses 1 through 8, faith of our fathers, number two, sheep to the slaughter, verses 9 to 22, and then finally the final four verses, verses uh, 23 or five verses, 23 to 26, more than conquerors. So faith of our fathers, sheep to the slaughter, and then more then so the first thing we see is the faith, the faith of our fathers. The psalmist tells us that his fathers had told his generation about the great works of God on their behalf. Verses 1 through 3, if you can look there, it says, O oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. Now, what deeds does he have in mind? Verse, The next verse there, you with your own hand did what? Drove out the nations. But them you planted, you afflicted the peoples, but them you set free, for not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So the fathers of this generation had recounted for them the great deeds of God's deliverance and salvation on their behalf. Their their fathers were faithful to tell the children's generation what great things God had done for them. And that's a lesson, uh, I believe, for us as well. We have to be sure to pass along from our generation to the next the things that we have learned of our great God and Savior, the things that God has done for our salvation in his son. We have to tell our children, our grandchildren, of God's steadfast love and power towards us in Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator of years ago, wrote this. It is a debt which every age owes to its posterity to keep account of God's works of wonder and to transmit the knowledge of them to the next generation. It's a debt that we owe. Each age owes the following age, our posterity, our children, our grandchildren, even our great-grandchildren. We need to tell them of the great works of God for our salvation. The faith of fathers and of mothers must be passed down to our children and grandchildren. The evangelism of our children in our midst, the next generation that's going to rise up and serve the Lord Jesus Christ in their day, must begin not just in the church, although it does have to begin there as well, but our text tells us it begins in the home. It's both. It's not either or. We pass along the truth of God to the next generation at home as well as in Church. Well, what what were the deeds that the psalmist generation had focused upon, at least according to the, the, the telling of it here in Psalm 44? What did their fathers tell them about? You know, very often the psalms point back to the exodus, to the actual, the event of the exodus where God made the sea split in two and, and drowned the chariots of, of Egypt and the sea and saved the people on dry land. But in this case, it's the conquest of Canaan. That's the thing that he points to more than anything else. And we're going to see why that is, I believe, as you go on in the, the psalm. So he, the, the fathers had told the children, now we don't know how long it had been since the conquest of Canaan when this, when this psalm was written, but the fathers had told them about the way that God had given the promised land into their possession. In, in a sense, and if, you were, if you ever went to college or even in high school, if you ever used cliff notes those little books, it's kind of cheating, right? But it summarized the book for you so you can give a book report basically on a book report, not that you've ever done that. Um, But in verses 2 to 3 of Psalm 44, what you have is kind of the cliff notes, if I can use that analogy, of the entire book of Joshua. Verses 2 and 3 are kind of our, in summary form, the inspired commentary on what God did in the book of Joshua. There. There, the children of God, uh, we are told how how they came to to possess the promised land, and how was it? How did the children of Israel come to take the promised land? It was by the hand of God himself. Listen to Joshua 24, verses 11 to 13. This is Joshua's summary at the end of the book of what happened. It's much like what we read here. In fact, as we're going to see, some of the same words are picked up by the psalmist from this text. Joshua twenty four eleven to 13, through the mouth of Joshua, God tells them this. You and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, the first city, right? And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And here's what it says. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. He doesn't say, God doesn't say, I made you leave your swords behind, right? They didn't just walk in un- unarmed, but God says it wasn't your sword. It wasn't your arm that accomplished it. It was me. I I got you there. I gave this land to you. You're living in houses you didn't build. You're eating of vineyards that you didn't plant. It's grace. It's not what you've done on your own. It wasn't by their own sword or bow. Notice the psalmist in verse 6 picks up on that. that exact, those two exact words, sword and bow. The psalmist says, I know it's not my own sword or my bow that gives victory. And it wasn't by their sword or bow that they took the land. It was not their own arm. that saved them. Whose arm was it? God's right hand and his arm. And what else? The light of his countenance. The light of the countenance of God himself. And verse 3 says, what was the reason for it? Why did God give them the promised land? He delighted in them. He showed his favor, his grace to them. It wasn't a reward for obedience. It was a fulfillment of his promise. In other words, it was by the free grace of God that the children of Israel possessed the land of promise and drove out the heathen. Did they have to march? Did they have to actually go in and take it? They certainly did. Did they have to fight? At times, they certainly did. But all their marching, all their fighting, and all of that was not responsible for their victory. They were more than conquerors, but they were more than conquerors only by God's favor, grace, and power. I believe there's an abiding lesson in this for us as well in our day. Uh, No less than Matthew Henry again writes the following. He says this, this part of the psalm, this is applicable to the planting of the Christian church in the world by the preaching of the gospel. Paganism was driven out as the Canaanites, not all at once, but little by little or, or by little and little, not by any human policy or power, for God chose to do it by the weak and foolish things of the world, but by the wisdom and power of God. Christ, by his spirit, went forth conquering and to conquer And the remembrance of that is a great support and comfort to those who groan under the yoke of anti-Christian tyranny. Psalm 44 still has relevance today. The conquest of Canaan still has lessons for us today. So what is Matthew Henry saying there? He's saying that the conquest of Canaan, in that there's an analogy of the spread of the gospel of Christ in the Great Commission, as given in Matthew chapter 28, in a sense... You could say that the entire book of Acts is the New Testament's version of the book of Joshua, of the church going in to, to conquer and take the land, but not with sword, and not by killing and driving out the heathen, but by preaching of the gospel, by the conversion of, of the nations and making disciples of all the nations. What, was there, what, was the, what kind of sword does the church use? In Ephesians 6.17, Paul calls the word of God, the what? The sword of the spirit. That's the weapon of our warfare. The simple little book that the world is always mocking and putting to scorn. But it just keeps on conquering. Jesus Christ is even now, to use his words and the words of scripture, going forth, conquering and to conquer. He's doing that through his word and through his spirit. How is the Great Commission to be accomplished? By us? No, only by the power of God himself going forth before us into battle for his people. And one of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, when he gave the Great Commission, what's the last thing he said? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. It's the same kind of imagery. The Lord had to go forth before the people into battle. Well, the Great Commission, in the battle of the, of, of the gospel, Christ goes with us and before us in the work. Well, this, the second thing we see in our text Maybe the main thing in some regard is in verses 9 to 22, it's sheep to the slaughter, that in a sense, God, according to the psalmist, has given his people over at times to be sheep to the slaughter. Look at verses 9 through, through 16. In, the, in that part of the, of, the, of the text, the psalmist kind of turns from boasting of the great deeds of God in the past, his father's generation, to dealing with and lamenting the, the inexplicable ways of God in the present. His present circumstances, his present situation. Verses nine through six, he writes this. But you, God, you have rejected us. So the fathers, you you helped them come in and take the land. But what about us? You have rejected us and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep. For slaughter, you have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and the reviler at the sight of the enemy. And the avenger, notice, I tried to emphasize it in the reading of it, but at least six times in verses 9 to 14, the psalmist attributes uh, Israel's defeat and disgrace to whom? Primarily, God himself, you, he says it over and over and over again, you did this, you did this, you did this. He didn't view his circumstance as an accident, as a coincidence. He, he saw God's role in all things. You know Our, our standards, our, the Westminster standards talk about God's providence and God's decrees. And we're very much uh, affirming the, the sovereignty of God here. And it says there that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass in time. It's, it's straight out of the scripture. Ephesians 1.11 talks about God making all things, working all things after the counsel of his will. Everything that happens, God is in part of it in some way. God is behind it by his decree. And just like those victories over the Canaanites, over the, the enemies of God's people in the promised land, were attributed to God ultimately himself and himself only, so also their defeat and their disgrace at the hands of their enemies are ultimately the work of God. doesn't mean that the, 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 the wicked weren't responsible for their part in it, But ultimately, God is the one who caused it to happen. God was the one, according to the psalmist, who had rejected them and not gone forth with their armies. Verse 9, God was the one who had made them turn back from the foe to, to retreat, to lose the battle. Verse 10, it was God who made them, quote, verse 11, like sheep for the slaughter, and it scattered them among the heathen. And verse 14, God had made them a byword among the nations. The nations, the, the heathen, the ones who worshipped false gods, were mocking the people of God. Look how they fall. You know, we've been reading through Isaiah on Sunday mornings on the on other than, other than the first Sunday of the month, obviously. But we've been reading through Isaiah for our scripture readings, and re- recently uh, we've read about Sennacherib, you know, the king of Assyria, taunting Hezekiah and saying, you know, all these other nations that uh, that trusted in their gods, what happened to them? I took them. You know, None of their gods have been able, I'm paraphrasing, have been able to deliver them, and yours won't either. Well, in, in this case, whoever this was, whatever generation this happened to be, um, that had come to pass. They had been allowed to to fail, to be conquered, to be scattered, and people, the heathen, were making a mockery of them and the one true and living God. Now, Notice at least three times in, in, in this psalm, the writer of the psalm mentions the nations. The King James Version, I think I've already mentioned, says... Uh, puts it as the heathen. Now we we're not accustomed to using that kind of a word very often in our day, but it, the word heathen does give a good sense of what he's getting at here. We we think of nations. We think of it as kind of a generic term, you know, we, the nations that aren't that aren't the United States. You know, what well, that could be anybody. That could be Mexico, France, Italy, Belgium, who, whatever. Um, well, in this case, there's a religious component to the word. To say the nations was, to, was really to say the heathen, the pagans, those who worshipped false gods. That's really what's going on here. So defeat alone, military defeat alone is bad enough, isn't it? Being attacked, losing a battle is terrible enough. Seeing the Lord's people devoured by the enemy like sheep to the slaughter is enough to make even somebody with the strongest faith shudder. We see that in the news even today, where persecution and terrorism are going on in in lands, and, and God's people are driven like sheep to the slaughter. But to see things done at the hands of the wicked, to see those things done by the hand of the heathen, those who worship false gods, that was too much for the psalmist to bear. It's one thing to lose a fight, to lose a battle. It's one thing it's entirely else to lose it to them. They didn't serve the one true living God, they worshipped and false false gods. They worshipped idols. God's people shouldn't fall to them. How could that be? If this were on account of sin or idolatry, we might be able to understand it. Now think about that. In your Old Testament in particular, you do see that happening, right? Remember the conquest of Canaan itself. The first city was, was Jericho. And they marched around for six days, and the seventh day they marched around seven times. The priests blew their horns, the people shouted, What happened to the walls? The walls just fell flat. They fell, I believe it says they fell inward, so they could go in and take the city. Uh, there's no human explanation for that. There's, there's no scientific way of rationalizing that. Well, the sound, the, the sound waves, you know, weaken the wall. No, it's God's way of showing them. You know, you didn't build that. You didn't knock that down. I did. Right? It's God's way of saying he's the one that did that. But what happened in the second city they attacked? When they went to the city of Ai, what happened? They had to retreat. And why did they have to retreat? They had to retreat because someone in the the battle of Jericho, God had told them, you don't take anything of the spoil." I want it wiped out. I want it all gone. And someone had decided, well, God certainly couldn't have meant everything. And they took a little bit aside. And what happened at I? They they were repelled. And it came to light. The person's sin came to light, didn't it? God had them cast lots. And the one family that was left was the family of the ones that had taken the spoil. You might remember uh, King Saul, for another example, when he was going forth to battle against, I believe it was the... Uh, King Agag, the the, the Agagites, um, the Amalekites, what happened? They sort of did what God said, but they kept animals for the spoil and King Agag. And the prophet had to go to King Saul and say, you know, if you've done all according to what God has said, what's the sound of sheep I'm hearing? Uh, It's awfully a lot of livestock around here for everything getting, getting wiped out. What happened? And he was rejected for that. He said that, you know, as you've rejected and despised the word of the Lord, so you've been rejected as king. You, you're no longer going to be God's king. Now He didn't die right there and then, and he caused plenty of problems for David, but God rejected him on the basis of that, of that sin. Well, that's, that's not what's happening here in Psalm 44, as the psalmist says. In verses 17 to 21, he's saying that they hadn't turned their backs on God. They hadn't violated or been false to his covenant Now, they're not saying they're sinless. This is not a self-righteous psalm. The psalmist is not saying, hey, I am utterly, my generation has done everything right. We have no sin to speak of. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, we're not hypocrites. We're not acting like we're worshiping you one minute, but really doing other things and, and believing in other gods in our hearts. We haven't chased after the false gods like some of their fathers had. None of that was The cause for their calamity. They had not broken God's covenant. Verse 22, the psalmist sums up the entire situation by saying, Yet, for your sake, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Why were they defeated? Why were they in disgrace? Was it for their sin? No. For your sake. It was for the sake of God that they were being killed all the day long. It wasn't for sin. It was just the opposite. They had been faithful to God. They had been faithful to his covenant and worshiping of him. And yet here they were being scattered like sheep to be slaughtered. William Plummer writes the following. This verse, verse 22, this verse shows the extreme and constant sufferings of God's people, even at a time when they had not displeased him, By any recent or visible defection. They hadn't brought it on themselves. And he follows up with this, these words have a sad fulfillment whenever God's people fall under persecution. The fact that the Apostle Paul, as we're going to see shortly, quotes this verse, and of all the places you can imagine he might quote this, he quotes it in Romans 8. What what that does is it tells us uh, that, 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 that the words of William Plummer are right. This is a prophecy, in a sense, of all the persecution of the church down through the ages. And that brings us to our third and our our final point, and that is that in Christ we are more than conquerors. It may sound like a strange thing to have our third point be that, but in verses 23 to 26, listen to what the, the psalmist writes. He says, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself! Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression for our soul is bowed down to the dust our belly clings to the ground rise up come to our help redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love again his circumstances which were awful like just there's, there's no way to it's almost impossible to uh, to to hyperbolize them he's not he's not making an analogy he's not Uh, exaggerating the case. They had lost a battle, and people were actually killed. He's not exaggerating. Um, But what what did those circumstances cause the psalmist and his his generation to do? To pray. They, They could have looked at their circumstances and said, you know what, serving God just doesn't seem worth it. Serving God doesn't seem like it's done us a whole lot of good, so what's the use? That's the temptation, isn't it? That's the temptation that was uh, made in the book of Job. This is, this is Job writ large. This is Job on a national scale in some ways. That was The temptation for Job all through Job was to curse God. Satan said, oh, you know, there's no, there's no mystery why he serves you. I'm paraphrasing here, right? Look, look how you've blessed him. Of course he serves you. Why wouldn't he serve you? But let me do something and we'll see. He'll curse you to your face. And God allows him, step by step. And why was Job tested? Because of sin? The exact opposite is the case. Job was tested severely so. Job was afflicted severely. God says it more than once, because there was no one else like Job. In a sense, who's Job really a picture of there? Jesus Christ, the one true and righteous sufferer in the history of the world. Well, It's telling to us that Romans 8, that in Romans 8 of all places, Paul quotes this psalm. Paul quotes verse 22. When you think of Romans 8, what do you think of? If you're familiar with that text, if you're not, I encourage you to read it. Read the whole book of Romans. That that text deals with the security of the believer's salvation in Christ. That text deals with assurance of salvation in Christ. we're, We're told there that nothing in all creation, including persecution and death, Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans eight, thirty-nine. But in that context, Paul quotes this psalm. And in doing that, he tells us that in this life, we can expect at times, that God's people can expect to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, sometimes violently so. You know, it's, it's been said multiple times, you've probably heard this before, but I don't have the stats, and I don't know where they get the numbers from, but they say that there have been more Christians martyred for the faith in the last hundred years, hundred plus years, than the entire history of the church put together before it. It's easy for us to lose sight of that when we sit here and comfort the way that we are in this land, but there are many places on this earth, even now, where God's people are literally sheep to be slaughtered. By the wicked, just like in this psalm, the, by the heathen. So Paul quotes, quotes the psalm and tells us, "Hey, look, th- think about what Paul is saying." Paul Paul looked at his own life. Read the book of Acts. Read read the history of the, of the latter part of the book of Acts, where Paul they're trying to kill him left and right. He's beaten, shipwrecked, chained, thrown in jail, uh, stone left for dead. All these things, and you have to get the impression from this that from his use of this psalm in Romans eight that. Paul meditated on Psalm 44 quite a bit. Paul loved the Psalms. Paul knew and loved the Psalms. He quotes from the Psalms numerous times in the book of Romans. Read the book of Romans and check how many times he quotes, not just from the Old Testament, he quotes from the Psalms. And that's no exception in Romans 80. He quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. What does that tell you? It tells you that Paul took great comfort from Psalm 44. Paul saw a little bit of his own experience in the words of Psalm 44. You have to even think that maybe Paul prayed such a prayer as we see at the end of this psalm. Once or twice when he was in jail under threat of death, he took great comfort from this psalm during his afflictions and the persecutions that he endured for preaching the gospel of Christ, and he would have us to do the same, God's people to do The same Psalm 44 tells you and I that we may suffer at times in this life. And not just for our sins, which does happen by God's grace and his discipline, but also for the name of Christ, for God, for his sake. That we sometimes share in, in some ways, the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ, which he left us an example that we might follow in his footsteps, we're told, in his suffering. We're called, the Bible says, not just to believe, but to suffer For his sake. But even in all that, even though if we're treated as sheep to be slaughtered, in all that, what does Paul say? In all that, we are more than conquerors through Christ. No wonder at the end of this psalm, the psalmist pleads with God, redeem us, verse 26, redeem us, save us, for the sake of what? Your steadfast love. What is Paul talking about in Romans 8? The steadfast love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The kind of love that nothing can separate you from in this life, nothing in all of creation. It's through that same steadfast love that Paul says that in all these things, what things? Persecution, nakedness, danger, sword, famine, martyrdom. In all these things, we are what? More than conquerors. More than conquerors through him who did what? Through him who loved us. Now, when he says, through him who loved us in Romans 8.37, it's kind of shorthand for what we're going to talk about and celebrate in the Lord's Supper. God, you know, Christ loves us, but when he says, past tense, him who loved us, the thing he has in mind is, is narrow in scope. It's the sufferings and death and resurrection of Christ on our behalf, on behalf of, of sinners. Because Christ died for us in our place and rose again for our justification, no matter what the world throws our way, no matter what God, our good God and Savior, allows to be sent our way, uh, no matter how many times His church, His 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 people mirror the the in some small way the sufferings of Christ, the fact that Christ died in our place means that we are more than conquerors. In all these things, through Christ who loved us, let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you that they aren't all happy and joyful and, and and those kinds of things, but that you give us psalms that we can sing when things aren't going well. That you give us psalms to sing even in times of persecution and affliction, there are psalms that we can sing and read and meditate upon and even pray and echo the words of uh, the words of faith that these psalms train us and teach us how to live, how to view our circumstances, and even how to worship in the midst of of affliction, We thank you that we can sing uh, by faith. We can sing through times even of great sorrow. We thank you for what this means. We thank you that uh, no matter what comes our way, that we are more than conquerors, not because of our own arm or our own hands or our own strength or bow or sword, but because of Christ through him who loved us. And we pray that if anybody here this morning doesn't yet know you and doesn't yet know uh, the un unfathomable victory that we have in Christ It's unshakable, that we are conquerors over all things if we are in Christ. We pray that you would open their eyes even now, grant them faith and salvation in his name, that they might know the love that nothing in all of creation can remove them from or take away the love of Christ our Lord. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.